come. And so today we will be in Psalm chapter 2, and we will look at what this psalm has to do with the coming of the Messiah and how that ties into the Christmas season. So I invite you to stand if you are able to stand for the reading of God's word as we read Psalm chapter 2. The psalmist writes, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we continue to focus our attention on you and on Christ during this service. Speak through me, speak to us, fill this place with your presence that we might know more about you, that we might rest in you and hope in you, God. Be glorified now during this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So this is uh, an interesting psalm to turn to, especially during the, the Christmas season. Um, nations raging, um, rods of iron dashing people to pieces like potters, vessels. So that is an interesting psalm to, to read, not a typical Christmas hymn about love and joy. And, um, but this is very, very important uh, for this holiday season, in particular, because of how this psalm is broken down. We can break this passage down into four different sections. So three verses in each section. Psalm 1 through 3 talks about the nations and the nation's attitude. 4 through 7 talks about the Father's response to the nations. 8 through 10 talks about the Son, and we see the Son's response. And then uh, excuse me, uh, 11, well, 10 through 12. I've got my verses all mixed up here, but 10 through 12 then talks about the warning and what we do in light of this. So we're going to break this down and focus on three uh, verses at a time. And we want to start in verse one through three. And we see the opening verse, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? So here we see the nations in an uproar, the nations plotting against God, against Yahweh and his anointed one. We see them acting out of sin. If we go back to creation, we look at Genesis chapter three, 
we see the fall. Adam and Eve are in the garden. Satan comes disguised as a serpent, goes up to Eve and says, did God really say that you can't eat of any tree in this garden? So he's already bringing in questioning God. Really? Are you really listening to God? Are you really hearing what he's saying? And Eve wrongfully says, well, no, no, we can eat from any tree, but this one tree, the knowledge of good and evil, we can't eat of it or touch it. So she's already misunderstanding because God never said you can't touch it. He just simply said you can't eat of it. So she's already gotten some things wrong. But then Satan says, no, 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 no. You won't die if you eat of this. God knows that when you eat of this, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And then Moses writes that when the woman saw that the fruit was pleasing to the eye, and good for food, and good to make one wise. She took and ate and gave to her husband who was with her, and he took and he ate, and everything collapses from there. What was their sin? They didn't want God to determine what was good and evil. They wanted to determine what was good and evil. They didn't want God's wisdom. They wanted their own wisdom. They wanted to be wise in their own eyes. They wanted to be self-determining. God, we don't need you anymore. We can be like you and we can determine these things for ourselves. And so here in this psalm, in the opening of this, we see the nations doing the exact same thing. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? What are they raging about? What are they plotting? They set themselves against God and against his anointed one. They say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. God is a slave driver. He keeps us chained up. We don't want what he wants. We don't want him to determine what is good for us. We don't want him to dictate what we believe or how we act. Let's plot together. Let's attack him. Let's get rid of this. Let's burst it apart and free ourselves. So they rage and they plot and they set themselves against God and his anointed because they want nothing to do with him. The sin of Adam and Eve continues and the nations rage. But notice that first verse, the very last phrase, the last two words, the people's plot in vain. Yes, they rage. Yes, they set themselves against the Lord and his anointed. Yes, they plot to burst the bonds because we don't want God as our slave driver. We don't want him ruling over us, but they plot in vain is how this psalm opens up. And then we move into the father's response. And we see the father laugh at their raging, laugh at their plotting, laugh at them saying, we're going to throw God off. We don't need him. And God laughs. I've heard sermons before that paint God in a picture of like, oh, no, 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 come back, come back, come back. No, don't go there. Oh, no, 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 come over here. Please don't do that. No, no, don't, don't do that. God is often painted in a weak manner. Um, it often feels like a parent with a child. No, 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 don't touch that. Come back over here. Oh, no, 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 stay away from there. So that's, that's not God. The people are plotting and raging against God and God laughs because their plotting is in vain. 
their plotting doesn't accomplish anything. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't achieve anything. He laughs, but not just that. He holds them in derision. Derision is a very interesting word. It's not a word that we hear all that often, but it implies laughter. It implies mocking. It implies looking down upon somebody. So the nations build themselves up. People build themselves up and set themselves against God and plot against God and rage against God. We've got this happening here in the Psalms. During the time that this was written, the nations were plotting and raging against Yahweh, against the God of Israel. But that hasn't changed. There's nothing new under the sun. The nations are still raging against God. They're still plotting against God. We can just look at the world around us. We see wars breaking out all over the place because people want their own ends. They want to achieve and accomplish their own desires. They don't care about anybody else. They don't care about what God says, or they twist God's words to make God approve of their actions. Just look at Congress. We've got congressmen that claim to be Christians, and then scandal after scandal after scandal comes out about them, and they did all of these things being Christians and submitting to God. And I learned just Thursday that Justin Bieber, of all people, leads worship sometimes with Hillsong. That blew my mind. I had no idea. That absolutely blew my mind. That somebody who can live a life the way he lives his life and then turn around and get up on stage and lead worship and people are okay with that. Why? Why do the nations rage? Why are people okay with others saying, yeah, I love Jesus, but then I live my life that is completely against him? Because they want to be wise in their own eyes. Our society is going through a crisis right now of identity. And we say, we don't want God's wisdom. You can love who you want to love. You can be what you want to believe. But believe. You can be, believe, whatever. And you should accept anybody else. Forget what the Bible says. Forget what God has said. Go your own way. Be wise in your own eyes. We read in Judges over and over again, in the book of Judges, Israel turns away from God. And, sa- and the author says, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And everything goes downhill. And then God sends a judge, delivers them from their enemies and their oppressors. And for a time, people follow God. And then that section concludes, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They forgot about God and turn their backs on him. So over and over, we see this pattern again and again and again. So as we look around at the world that's going on, it can feel overwhelming. It can feel like the church is losing. It can feel, as, especially as Americans, when we look at our government and what the government is voting on and what states are approving or not allowing and how the cultural tides are shifting, it can feel very despairingly and awful and can send you into a downward spiral. But look to God. How does God respond to this? God isn't taken aback. He isn't caught off guard. God laughs at what the nations do. He holds them in derision at their plotting and says that their plotting is in vain. 
I think of subtle ways in which people try to get rid of God. And this is very, very subtle. But, and you might laugh at me at the nerdiness of this. I'm looking at you, Robert. Um, but um, we have always said for a long time, AD for the year, this is 2023 AD. And um, back then it was 500 BC. So AD comes from the Latin, Anno Domino, and the year of our Lord. Saul centered around Christ. And how do the nations rage? Uh-uh. We're not calling it AD anymore. We're calling it BCE and CE, current era and before the current era. We're getting, we're getting rid of Christ out of this. Though I laugh at that because it's still centered around Christ's birth um, and when they bring that division in. So um, that's fine. You can rage if you want. You can do that if you want. But it's still centering around Christ. Christ is still centered around that. But it's little subtle things like that. And it's big, major things like that. It is not... a when you are in your work environment, there are two things that are um, unspoken truths that you should never talk about. Religion and politics. The two things that you should never talk about. But yet, why? Why don't we want, I mean, I can understand politics, I get that, but religion, why don't we want to talk about religion? Well, we want to call people to account. We want to tell them the good news. We want to tell them the hope. But there is this unspoken rule that says you can't talk about Christ. You can't talk about Jesus. Uh, at Deaconess, they are trying to be inclusive and trying to, um, you know, bring everybody together. And so they will post little things about um, Hanukkah and Kwanzaa and, um, and Christmas. But Christmas, what they post about is Christmas is about Jesus and the holidays and Santa Claus and all of these other different things. So it's just like, okay, yeah, now, I don't know who wrote that article about Christmas, but yeah, they... They don't know what they're talking about, or they're trying to be politically correct and, and not get in trouble or however. But we see all of this coming in and slipping into our society, and we're surrounded by this culture that doesn't want God, that doesn't want Christ. Live your, lo- your life the way you want to live. If you want to follow Jesus, great. Just don't talk about him. Don't tell me that I need to follow Jesus. I don't want to hear about it. You live your life that way. Just approve of me and the way I live my life. That's great. I believe all of these things over here. Just acknowledge that I'm, I'm right too, and then we can move on with our life. There's nothing new under the sun. So what the psalmist is writing about and is happening in his day, it's happening in our day as well. But we can look to God and we can hope. We don't have to despair. We can look to God and hope because he laughs. But then notice the transition here. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. How does that terrify people? How does that cause people to be troubled? The nations want to cast God off. They want to rule themselves. So God's response is, I have set my king on my holy hill who will rule over you. Why don't the nations want to hear that? We can look at Matthew chapter 2 and we can see Herod's response 
to when the wise men come to Jerusalem. They're following the star. They come into Jerusalem and they say, hey, we're here to worship at the feet of the one who's been born, who will be king of kings. And what does Matthew write about Herod's response? He was troubled. But not just Herod, all of Jerusalem with him was troubled at this statement. Herod, king of the Jews, is troubled that there is a king greater than him who is born. So what does he do? He plots and he rages and he tells the wise men, hey, go find him in Bethlehem as the prophecies say, but then come back and tell me where he is because I too want to go and worship at his feet. God then tells the wise men to leave and go a different route. Don't go back through Jerusalem, go back home a different way. And then tells Joseph, take your family and flee to Egypt because Herod is about to do some wicked, evil things. And then Herod, what is his response when he finds out that he's been tricked? He slaughters and murders all male children, two years old and younger because he wants to be king. He doesn't want any king set over him. He doesn't want anybody to rule higher than him. He wants all the glory and all the power for himself. So he rages and he plots and he commits atrocities in an attempt to stop the promised Messiah. He is a Jew. He is a Jew and he's trying to stop the Psalms from coming true. He's trying to stop Isaiah and the other prophets from coming true. He wants the Messiah dead. He is raging against God. And yet God laughs at that and says, I've set my king on my holy hill. You cannot stop me. And clearly Herod did not stop God. He did not stop the Messiah from coming. We can look at Acts. Denton just preached on this not that long ago, a few weeks ago, of Herod giving this speech. This is a different Herod. So that Herod died, another Herod. Um, this new Herod gives a speech and the people say, are they so impressed? And they say, a voice like a God, not of a man. And what does Herod do? He basks in the glory. That's right. I don't need God. I'm a Jew, but I don't need the God of the scriptures. I don't need Yahweh. I can be worshiped like I'm a God. This is great. What happens? He dies. God kills him. God strikes him down. They rage and they plot in vain against the, the Lord and against his anointed. And we can look to this and take hope as chaos swirls around us, as life has its ups and downs, and the social situation and political situation are constantly in flux, and we have no idea what's going to happen next, what law is going to be passed, or what direction our, even our current employer is going to go in, and forcing, forcing us to ask, can I continue to work here or not, and still honor Christ? We don't have to fret. We don't have to despair, because God is sovereign. He is in control, and he has set his king on his holy hill, and his king will rule over all the nations and the nations hate that. They don't want that. They want to fulfill what started in the garden. We want to be wise in our own eyes. We want to determine what's good for us. We don't want God telling us what's good for us. Then we see the son speak. 
We see the anointed one. We see the king speak. And the son says, I will tell of the decree of the Lord. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. We see that the anointed one that is up in verse 2. We see that the anointed one is the holy son of God. He is begotten, not created, as the old creed says. He is truly God, truly God. He's truly man of truly man, begotten, not created. He is not a creature like we are. He was not created. And so he is the anointed one. He is the holy one. He is the son of God. So this is clearly talking about Jesus Christ, who is the son of God. And the son says, Jesus continues to speak. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. The father gives a gift to his son. And that gift is the world. And the nations rage. And the nations hate that. They don't want him to rule over them. And God says, This world belongs to me, and I give you to my son. He will rule over you. All of the earth is his possession. All of it belongs to him. Satan tempted Jesus. After Jesus spent 40 days fasting in the wilderness, Satan came to him and took him up onto the top of the temple and showed him a vision of all the kingdoms of the earth. And Satan said, if you bow to me and worship me and follow me, I will give you all of these nations. You won't have to die on the cross. You won't have to suffer the wrath of God. You can worship me and I will give all of this to you. And Jesus rejects that because the father has already given all of that to him. Jesus is faithful to the father. The Son is faithful to the Father, and here we see the Father say, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. And so the nations rage. They rage against Jesus Christ, and they plot, and they plot against him, trying to overthrow him. And we see that happening. We see laws passed in countries where it is illegal to be a Christian, where it is illegal to talk about Christ. Some countries, they will lock you up. Some countries, they will, you will lose your job. Some families will kick you out and cast you out onto the street. Other countries, they kill you for it. They don't want this king to rule over them. And so they rage and they plot in vain. Because notice what the father continues to say to the son. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Nations, you can rage and you can plot and you can set yourselves against the Lord and his anointed all you want, but he will not be overcome. He will win. You set yourself against him and he will break you with a rod of iron and dash you in pieces like a potter's vessel. All week long, as I've been thinking through this sermon, a song has constantly been swirling around in my mind, which was a song that was very popular in the early 2000s. So some of you, this might be before your time. Um, 
But it was a missions song. It was about missions and going and sending missionaries and taking the gospel. And the chorus said, ask and I will, and ask and I will give the nations to you. O oh Lord, that's the cry of our hearts. Distant shores and the islands will see your love as it rises on earth. And then it repeats itself and it builds and it builds and it builds. And it's like, oh, it's so moving, but it's absolutely wrong. That passage is not about us taking the gospel to the nations. It's about God giving the nations to the king, the Messiah, his son, to rule over them. And the nations rage against them. It's odd that the song didn't include um, this last verse, that you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. But that doesn't make for um, fun worship music, I guess. But um, uh, they happened to, to leave that part out. And so for the longest time, I didn't know that this psalm was about um, the king and the Messiah because I never really read it. I just knew it based on the song that I sang. She's so like, oh, this song's about missions and yeah, we should all be missionaries, and, which is true. We should share the gospel, which is why we collect Lottie Moon. But that's not what this is talking about. And so when we read this, we need to see it in context that the nations are given to the son as his heritage and they rage against him and they will fail. They will fail. That is our hope, and that is our joy during this Christmas season as the nations rage around us. The king will not be overcome. The king will win. He will win, and we take joy in that. But the last three verses, there is a warning here that we must heed. Everyone must heed. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Notice here, be wise. Already the nations have rejected God following in the footsteps of Adam and Eve. We want to be wise in our own eyes. And yet, what the narrator is saying here, O kings, be wise. Do not be fools. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. You think that you are being wise, and yet you are being fools. When people turn their backs on God and reject God and say, I'm going to determine what is right and good for me and what is right and proper for me, I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care what Jesus says. I don't even believe that you exist. I reject you. You're being a fool. Because to be wise is to heed this warning here. And the warning is this, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. William Bates lived between 1625 and 1699. So a long time ago um, in a country far, far away. Um, but he wrote of this passage, he said this, this fear of God qualifies our joy. If you abstract fear from joy, joy will become light and wanton. And if you abstract joy from fear, fear then will become slavish. So what he's saying here is that what the author here is saying, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. How in the world 
can I serve with fear? And how can I rejoice with trembling? What Bates says is that if you take fear away from joy, you cast fear away and all you have is joy. Joy becomes light, becomes wanton. There's so much to be desired. There's not a lot there. It's very shallow. It's not significant. It's light. I get the image of just like floating away with the air, you trying to hold on to like dandelion seeds as the wind blows. I hate dandelions. I pick them up and I try to keep the seeds from blowing everywhere as I take them to my trash can, but inevitably seeds just get blown and fly everywhere. And so that's what I think of when he says, remove fear from joy and it becomes light and wanton. I'm like, no, 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 come back, come back. No, no, wait, wait, come back. I can't collect it all. I can't keep it all. Joy is fleeting. It doesn't last if you take fear out. But the reverse is true. If you take joy away from fear, then fear becomes slavish. And this is why the nations rage. They find no joy in the gospel. They find no joy in the king and in the Lord's anointed. They don't want him. So they fear him, which is why Herod was willing to butcher children, two years old and younger, because he didn't want the king of kings to rule over him which is why the next Herod rejoiced that people were worshiping him as a God because he didn't want God. He wanted to be like God. And all around us, people want to be like God. We want to determine what is right and good for us. And so we reject God because God's rules and regulations without joy cause us to fear Fear without joy causes us to say, I have to do this to please God. I have to do this to earn God's favor. I have to do this so that God will forgive me. I have to do this so that um, God will even consider looking at me. And so I do, I do, I do, I do, I do. And I become a slave to this. And it becomes a burden and it becomes wearisome. And at the end, I'm gonna say, I don't need this. I don't want this. I don't wanna serve a God that forces me to be a slave like this. Why should I have to do and do and do and prove to God that I'm good and prove to God that I'm all right? I don't want that. So I reject God because I don't want to be underneath the yoke of slavery like that. That's awful. No one wants that. And so we rage and we set ourselves against the Lord and his anointed because we see no joy in any of this. All we see is the fear. And so we say, let us burst our bonds from this. Let us take the cords off of us. And so we reject it. But that's what fear of the Lord, I don't want to go to hell, so I'm going to do this and do this and do this and do this, and then we're like, we're done. We give up. But then if we have joy without fear, we see the evangelical world in America today that floats around and is swayed by this and that, and then different, as society moves further and further away from God, the evangelical community starts believing that because we don't fear God. We have joy that just floats around with the wind. And we aren't grounded and rooted in anything. But when you mix fear and joy together, then you become rooted and grounded in the truth. We serve the Lord with fear and we rejoice with trembling. We remember that God is sovereign and he is in control. We remember that he has every 
right to destroy us. He has every right to punish us for our sins. We have done nothing that deserves God's grace, his love, his mercy. And God has every right to bring his wrath directly upon us because we have sinned against him, the holy God of the universe. We've rejected him and we have said, we don't want you. We want to be wise in our own eyes. Every single person alive is underneath this same curse. So we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. As Paul writes in Romans, there's no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who does good. There is no one who seeks after God. We are all under the wrath of God and we need to remember that. But yet the joy comes in because we remember who God is, rightfully who he is. We remember what he has done, what we have been singing about this morning. Every single one of those, which I cannot remember all the lyrics off the top of my head right now, but as we were singing, I was like, man, I need to remember this song. The next one, I need to remember this song so that I can tie it in to, to this because each one of those songs applies to what we are talking about. We serve the Lord and we rejoice in what he has done, but we are rooted in reality of who God is. And so we couple the fear of the Lord together with the joy of the gospel together and we are grounded and we are solid so we can serve him rightly and we can rejoice rightly and it doesn't feel slavish and we don't get blown around with every social change that flits and floats around um, and then comes and goes and then we're on to the next thing but we are grounded and solid firm in the king who is set on god's holy hill whom God has given the nations and the earth as his possession and his heritage. So we stand firm in that, having a right view of God and a right understanding of what God has done for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this is the warning. Kiss the sun. Kiss the sun implies a lot of different things. There's a lot of different imagery that comes into here. Kiss the sun applies affection applies love, applies compassion and kindness. It also implies a peace agreement. So we go up and we kiss the king, not in an affectionate, romantic kind of sense, but we go up and we bow down and we kiss the king. Oftentimes you see this pageantry around where the king holds his hand out and people come up and kiss his hand. It's a sign of submission. It's a sign of you are my king, you are in authority over me, and I submit to you. And I acknowledge that you are the right and true king. We kiss the son in love and affection and kindness and in submission and as a peace agreement with the son and with the father because the father gives the son. And so we come and we kiss the son. But if we refuse to kiss the son and we refuse to come, with a humble heart that submits to the king. The warning is this. He will be angry and you will perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. If we despise and reject the son and we stand underneath his wrath and his anger and his justice. Look at Herod in Acts. He despised and he rejected the son and he 
took all the glory and the worship for, his, for himself, and God struck him down. This is the warning. O kings, don't rage. O peoples of the earth, don't plot in vain, because it is in vain that you are plotting. You cannot overthrow God. You cannot stop his plans. Just look at what Herod tried to do. He tried to murder the Messiah to keep the king of kings from coming, and he failed. Be wise, not in our own wisdom, but in God's wisdom. Be warned. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. This is the warning. If you are here today and you reject the Son, you are under His wrath and His judgment and His anger is what the Scriptures promise. You plot in vain. You seek after your own heart. So I call upon you with the psalmist here, be wise, be warned, kiss the Son, turn to Him. That is what Christmas is about. This is what the coming of Messiah was about, to give hope, to bring hope, to make a way. God, instead of pouring his wrath out on us, turned to his son and poured his wrath out on him. And so in Christ, we get the conclusion of the psalm. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in the Son, in the Anointed One, in the King of Kings. So if you are in Christ Jesus today, you have found refuge and peace. Take comfort in that. Let the nations rage around you. Don't trouble yourself with that. Look to God who stands there and laughs at their raging because they can do nothing against him. They can't triumph over him. And in his son who died for you and rose again, we find refuge. We find peace. We find comfort. He is the prince of peace, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. This is what Christmas is about, that God sent his one and only son into the world to die for us so that God could pour his wrath out on his son instead of us. And the scriptures tell us that it pleased the father to crush the son in our place. God doesn't want the nations to rage against him. He gives this warning, O kings, be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth. So that warning applies to everyone don't turn your back on Christ and reject Christ. Kiss the Son, embrace the Son, for He is good and His love endures forever. So let us be wise with the wisdom of God, not our own wisdom this Christmas season. Let us rejoice with fear and trembling in who God is and what He has accomplished for us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.